Hello, and welcome to the Fearless Storyteller Podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Freckleton. Have you ever noticed how fear stops us from creating and sharing our best work? Join the Fearless Storyteller as we explore the heart and soul of writing stories, songs, and scripts that sell with the people who write them. Each guest has their own unique hero's journey and insights into the intersections between limiting beliefs and success. What's my story? In 2007, I was divorced, in debt, stuck in a soul-sucking job, desperate to have a meaningful, fulfilling life, but not sure where to begin. I made a simple choice at the time, to start honoring my yes and to start speaking my no. Consequences be damned. After all, how could my life possibly get any worse? I began the long path of becoming a professional songwriter, finding my fearless voice along the way. Now, I'm living my dream life as a husband, father, and professional storyteller. Abby Lynn Knorr is an award-winning Canadian fantasy writer and USA Today best-selling author. It wasn't always easy, though. She'd wanted to write stories since early childhood, but struggled for years to finish anything she started. It was only when she began writing with a plan that she was able to turn writing as a career into more than a dream. Abby Lynn still has her struggles, but she's making a full-time living writing with heart and authenticity. Abby Lynn Knorr, welcome to The Fearless Storyteller. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's my pleasure. I'm, I'm glad we get to connect. Um, you came highly recommended from Martha Carr, who was a Aww. popular guest on the show. She's lovely. Yeah, we, we met, um, well, we met virtually kind of over the phone around the time that both of us were, she had already written some thrillers, but she was um, trying to figure out what to do next. And I had started doing fantasy. And so we connected because of Michael Anderley's group. Mm. Kind of friends and was chatting and talking marketing and then ended up working together and um yeah she publishes with michael anderley and i published a four book series with them with her so yeah she's a lovely person yeah and i imagine you are as well and and for people who don't know you what would you like to say about yourself oh boy <laughs> hmm. i'm a uh, textbook introvert and really quite shy um so i don't like i'm kind of i'm on facebook because you kind of have to be that's where readers are and stuff but i don't actually put myself out there that much but um mm. yeah so i mean living in london and having moved here not that long ago i kind of gave up not gave up but i'm missing my network of people and um mm -hmm. i spent a lot of time writing and i joke that i'm going to become this really weird creature that blogs and doesn't cut her fingernails <laughs> I'm trying to get out there and meet people and you know but I'm it's hard for me I think maybe a lot of writers can relate to that yeah so, I don't know sometimes I think people think I'm really shy or not that people think anything about me but my readers you know um so I'm trying to you know reach out a bit more I just love all forms of storytelling and I think everybody does actually thinking about this because it's how you how we've always passed down culture and tales you know cautionary tales and talking around the fire and even if you just go meet somebody for coffee mm -hmm. you're, you're storytelling and yeah so i think i always knew i wanted to be a storyteller and i loved nautical history and mermaids and you know always had this fantasy of going underwater and that's kind of what led me into writing mm. like a bit of fantasy fulfillment fantasy fulfillment tell me more yeah. about tell me more about that like how did you find well, your way into those interests i always uh well i'm a pisces i don't know if that has anything to do with it but i'm a fish <laughs> <laughs> um since i was a little kid i was always fascinated with the underwater world and especially mm. not just marine biology and the creatures that live there but um shipwrecks and nautical history and the things that happen on the ocean and for a while i was obsessed with the called the golden age of piracy but it's actually a really mm. horrible time mm -hmm. <laughs> um and just the idea of setting sail and these people these explorers and you know people who just got on a, a ship and that was their whole world you know they're out in the middle of nowhere in this kind of foreign and often hostile kind of places really cop captured my um imagination when i was a kid and i thought the best way 
to explore to under, explore an underground world and shipwrecks was if you could be a mermaid and you wouldn't have to worry about scuba gear or you know um timing or like how long mm. i've been under worried about the, all the you know the, the cons that come with the diving gear and stuff so i would imagine that i could go and explore all these wrecks as a mermaid and not have to worry about any of that stuff and then from there it just kind of like the the fantasy kind of expands you're like well what would it be like if mermaids were real and what would their mating cycles be like or what would their biology be like and would they have magic and all this and you start like dreaming up all these questions and you create Mm. this world you know and kids are so good at that they just yeah surrounded by their imagination all the time i think you to a certain degree carry that with you as you grow up and never totally lose it even if you you know, you fall into lots of other things and you take up other interests and you learn crafts and you work. But the stuff that really fascinated you as a kid always has a special place in your heart. And I think that's probably why I started there. Mm. Um, You know, and having done a little over three years now of publishing and looking back, I'm glad I started there because that's where my heart was. But if I looked at it from a business perspective, I probably would have made different choices. Mm. Um, Because... We all say that. Well, because mermaids are extremely niche and there's not a huge group of readers for that kind of um, genre. And if I had started, I don't have any regrets, but now that I look back with an educated eye, I probably would have looked for a genre that was bigger mm. and had more um, more readership and kind of explored, uh, maybe asked the question, what, do, what can I see myself writing for years and years to come and not get tired of it? And it's not that I'm tired of mermaids, but I don't want to write 40 mermaid books, you know? Mm. Um, I want to be able to write other things too and not kind of pigeonhole myself. Um, Although my siren books are probably the most popular ones. I just, you want to flex different muscles. And as a writer, you just kind of, you know, want to, as you were saying, stretch and try different things. And you get ideas for stories that are totally different from the vein that you started out taking. And you just never know where that road is going to take you. Yeah. And so you've been publishing for three years, but during that time you were imagining mermaids and exploring shipwrecks and all that. Were you writing or keeping a journal of your ideas? Yeah, I, I'm not really keeping a journal of ideas, but but I was always writing because ever since I could read, which was I was three, my mom taught me to read when I was really young. Um, I still don't know how to read numbers, but letters I'm good with. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I knew that I wanted to be a storyteller, but through my adult life and stuff, I just kind of got disenchanted with it in the sense that it was just too much of an uphill battle and it was too difficult and there's too many gatekeepers and it would probably never happen. And I Mm. couldn't figure out how to finish the story anyways. I'm kind of the personality type that gets all enthusiastic about an idea and then halfway through when it gets hard, loses steam. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know that was my weakness until I took a personality test and realized, oh, that's why I can't finish anything. And had to really tackle that weakness. And when I figured out how to get around that, then I was like, oh, I can do this actually. And around that, well, probably a few years later is when I started stumbling across podcasts about um, indie authoring. And I was just amazed to see that people were could actually do it successfully, do it as a living full time and write what they wanted and not be beholden to anybody or have to write what they were told to write or... Yeah. you know, have a contract, but no agreement to follow up with it. And it just amazed me. So I was, when I've learned that, I was like, this is it. This is my future. I have to do this. I'm driven to do this. Yeah. I discovered indie writing and publishing the same way via podcasts. Really? And yeah. And at the time I had been doing the music thing a long while and, yeah. and it was so refreshing to hear because I'd always wanted to write books, but it's such an intimidating process. It like is. when you're writing songs, you're committing half a day to two days. You, right. you, write, you write a book, you know, who knows? You still have to learn how to finish the book. And yeah. I wanted to follow up with that. Um, you figured out, you know, you tackled this weakness around getting that finishing energy or finishing novels. And just wanted to go back into that. Like, what did you discover? Like, what was your like Not turning right. point with that? Well, I think it came from my career and just having, like I worked for um, a bath and body company in a small town in Canada, in the Rockies. And I just, being there for eight years under um, working in marketing was like being in university. Mm -hmm. And the 
people I worked with were really committed to me as well. And so they, they invested a lot in my education. And I learned that I just needed a plan. I needed mm. to know where I was going and I needed to know before I started whatever I was doing, whether it was writing a book or it was something else, how did it end? Like, what was the objective? What was the outcome I wanted? And when I had, cause often I would start projects and I had no idea what I really wanted. I just had this energy and this um, excitement about an idea. Like, wouldn't it be great? And you just get lost in the, in the fun part of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I wouldn't think about where it was going. And then kind of, that's what happened to me. I just, oh, halfway through the project, I'd be like, I feel like I need a map. I don't, know where I'm going. I feel like I'm a bit lost. I've lost enthusiasm. Now the work is hard. And now I have to fight um, distraction to get it done because every time I sit down to do creative work, I just feel like it's uphill, you know, and you blame things like writer's block or you're distracted by video games or when really like all of that stuff doesn't compete when you have a plan and you sit down in front of Mm. like screen and you know what you're trying to achieve in that next hour. So the planning phase of it became huge. Like to me, I have 80% of my project is the work is all upfront and the actual writing part of it is just time in your, you know, time on your computer, getting it out. But I, I never knock on wood suffer from writer's block or um, lack of enthusiasm anymore. That's great. And so was that lack of enthusiasm you mentioned because you were lost or kind of, yeah, I think it just, if you don't know where you're going, you're, you get intimidated so easily and you sit down to write and you're like, well, there's a million directions I could take this in. Mm. And then you can't, you can't really, at least for me, this is intensely personal and other, other writers write in different ways. But for me, if I sit down in front of a blank screen and I don't know how the chapter I'm writing ends or the scene ends, I find it hard to start. Mm. I can't start, then you feel stuck. <laughs> yeah. So it's like that turning on the tap, you have to turn on the tap first and then all the answers start to come because the water flows and, you know, before you turn on the tap, you got to know like where you're headed, why you're, why you're turning the tap on. Yeah. Yeah. And you're, you're right. There's so many ways people tackle that, but so what do you have done before you start a book now? Like, you know how it ends. Sorry, what? So, what, you, what do you have finished as far as planning before you start a book now? Like, you've obviously, oh. you said you've got the ending figured out. Is there anything else? Yeah, I have a whole outline plotted using kind of a basic um, four act. These are a three act or a four act structure. Mm-hmm. And I read a lot of um, screenwriting books because I find they condense storytelling mm-hmm. in a very like, simple way. And so I like relying on kind of some of those tactics. And I, I basically have each um, chapter um, with a little, I don't have a lot. I probably have just a half a paragraph or maybe a paragraph, but that's enough for me to know this has to happen. These three things have to happen. Mm-hmm. And then I let myself sink into the story and like the, the scene and it just kind of comes out. So Cool. <laughs> so are you kind of discovering the rest as you go or? Yeah, the rest, like it's amazing because there has to, it's such an interesting um, creative process because you, you have to know where you're going, mm-hmm. but you don't want to be so tightly structured or outlined that there's no room for something new to pop up because characters will do strange things <laughs> that you actually weren't expecting them to do, but it's the, it comes naturally in the moment. And then all of a sudden, there's opportunity to expand on that. And a lot of times the books get better from that process, from allowing that like um, creative freedom to come in and flex. And that's why I don't put too much detail in. Yeah. I imagine readers appreciate that because we can all tell when a book is predictable versus when it takes us for a ride that we're not expecting things to happen. Totally. I think that's why people read, you know, they, they want to be surprised. There's, I mean, someone, I don't remember who, but someone put it perfectly that, you know, that Luke, I am your father moment in star Wars. Yeah. That, um, rush of insight, like where all of those key, the key messages and moments that were all planted throughout that film. So that when that moment came, you went, Oh, of course, why didn't I see it? Mm-hmm. It was all there right in front of me. 
And that rush of insight is like a high for the reader. Yeah. And yeah. I think that's what we're trying to achieve, you know, with the books is like giving them that, like <gasps> that jolt of that rush of insight that they have invested up to that point. They're kind of waiting for it. They know something's going to happen. They're trying to predict it. And what a great feeling to know that what they've predicted actually turned out differently and better yeah. than what they were thinking would happen. Yeah. So does, does that happen in books that you like reading or that you grew up reading? Oh yeah, for sure. Um, I think, you know, some, some authors are really known for that kind of, um, I don't know if you want to call them twists, but like that, mo those moments of revelation that they've laid out so beautifully, but so secretly along the way, yeah. they've hidden them. Like it's very like careful kind of misdirection, intentional misdirection so that they can then surprise you in that moment towards the end, you know, in the climactic scenes. That's so satisfying to me as a reader. And I get that, I get that from quite a few reader, um, writers that I enjoy. And if it doesn't have that, I often don't pick up another book, you know, mm. but that yeah. feeling is like, I don't know. It's like, uh, it's like a high <laughs> kind of. Yeah. So, so who are some of your like heroes or inspirations that, that give you that high of reading? Authors? Yeah. Um, I, well, this is going to sound like everybody loves Stephen King, but <laughs> I love you're allowed, King. you're allowed to love Stephen King. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> I learned so much from him and I, you know what? I was scared to pick up his books for years because I hate horror. At least I say I hate horror. I don't like being horrified. Yeah. Um, it's so dark and so macabre and that's what people know him for. But actually he's written a, a lot of other stories that don't, that aren't horrifying and are absolutely amazing. Like the body, which became the movie stand by me. Hmm. It doesn't take very long to read that. It takes a few hours, but I've read it six times and I guarantee you I'll read it again. I get so much out of that story and which is to say nothing from, you know, about all the other books that he's written that I've read. I just can't bring myself to read the really scary ones, but, mm -hmm. <laughs> but I get a lot from, from him. But the thing, I mean, I, I like to say um, some authors are masters of prose, some are masters of plot and some are masters of character. But Stephen King is all three. Hmm. And that to me is hard to find. I mean, he's one of the, I don't know if he is the biggest, probably not J.K. Rowling might be, but he's a, a huge, massive, well-selling author. And there's a reason for that. You know, his metaphors are astounding. Hmm. You know, there's a lot of cliches and stuff that this is just an example in his prose. You can put so many cliches, it's so easy to just put fallback metaphors in because metaphors are what, you know, um, hook the brain and keep them wanting to turn pages, you know, sub yeah. kind of subconsciously. And his metaphors are just incredible to me. Like guilt is like a drunken house guest always coming back for one more goodbye hug. Mm. Isn't that beautiful? Like he's just, yeah. If you've ever had, um, sorry, grief, not guilt. Grief is like a drunken house guest always coming back for one more goodbye hug. Grief is like that. It comes in waves. It kind of anyone who's been through that can really relate to that metaphor. And it just, it sticks with you. It makes you fall in love with the characters. It makes yeah. you empathize. It makes you, and he's riddled his books with those kind of beautiful um, and obviously scary uh, imagery. Yeah. Makes you think that maybe he, uh, he may keep a journal of, of these yeah. uh, aphorisms. <laughs> can you imagine, can make, ma imagine making those up on the fly when you're in the Oh, flow? I know. Yeah. So hard. I, that's one of the things I would love to emulate. I'm just like, well, he's a genius. That's all there is to it. <laughs> I can try my best, but I don't know if I can come up with a metaphor that original <laughs> while I'm in the middle of writing a chapter. Yeah, it's definitely something I notice when I'm reading as well. It's not, when I'm writing, it's probably not where I put most of my energy, but I mm -hmm. definitely look forward to being better at that. Yeah, the more you do it, the better you get. And then there's a few other authors who really have blown me away too. Like, I mean, the ones that people would recognize like Steve Larson. Yeah. Um, and Ken Follett and mm. Maura Pierce really enjoy their stories like, and all for different reasons. And I love to read all kinds of things. That's part of, I mean, intellectually promiscuous press It's the same in my reading. I'll pick up <laughs> Indy, I'll pick up trad. I'll read non like nonfiction on one day. I'm reading a Viking history book just because I never really was that interested in Vikings before. And all of a sudden I'm just like, huh, I think I'd like to learn something about this. And every time I pick up something different, a new story idea comes out of nowhere. And all of a sudden I've got like reams of series ideas that I'll never get to. 
I'm sure you know what that's like. Yes, yes. I have a lot of like one-page captures of ideas that I'm like, ooh, that's so cool. Tempting. Yeah. That's what dis- what's going to distract you from your current project. That's the problem. You have to keep yeah. I, I, I always let these ideas unfold long enough to be like, okay, now I've got enough to have a series. Now I'm going to yeah. put it away. Yes. You kind of know if it's a good one because it just keeps coming back to you like, yeah. over and over, sometimes over a course of years. Yeah, it's frustrating. I've got about three or four of those right now yeah. in the drawer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> one day, the one day drawer. <laughs> so how do you handle that? Like with your own writing, I assume you have a pace you keep and your ideas must outpace your writing. Oh, oh yeah. I have enough ideas to keep me going for a decade. And every, every series that I write creates the opportunity for spinoffs. And those mm-hmm. spinoffs are so, I mean, there's so much detail already there. The universe is built, there's characters already, and your readers are waiting, like they want more. So it's very easy to just do a spinoff um, mm-hmm. and really satisfy your readers, even with all these other uh, separate series ideas going on in your head. But I, I, try, and, I try and keep a pace of a minimum of 2,000 words a day. Mm-hmm. Um, 4,000 on a good day, 6,000 on a great day. Um, but I battle a couple of physical issues like TOS and RSI, which I got me you know, just since I became a writer. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I used to try and write 10, 13,000 words a day and I could do it, but I knew I was paying for it. It wasn't sustainable. Yeah. So, that's, that's, that's real stuff. <laughs> yeah. And it, it's one of those things you don't, I mean, you just, you think, you know, I'm sitting or I'm standing, I have a sit-stand desk and I'm not actually moving that much. It should be, it shouldn't be harmful for the body and stuff, but you really start to wear down after a few years if you don't take care of yourself. Yep. Yeah, I, I definitely noticed that. That's, that's been a big part of my process is just making sure I can show up at my yeah. desk every day. It's really hard to sometimes tear yourself away from your work too. Like hours will go by and you... You know, I haven't even looked up. I haven't eaten anything. It's 5 p.m. Yeah. What happened? I mean, like you kind of stop caring for yourself. You start to understand why artists um, get the get called crazy. You know, Mm. (laughs) crazy crazy genius Um, because you you just get sucked into this world and you forget to be a human. (laughs) (laughs) You forget you have human needs. You need to go to the gym and get outside and have some fresh air and maybe talk to somebody. (laughs) You're right. I suppose the upside of that is I bet while you're at the keyboard writing, you're not coming up with other ideas to vex you. No. Or were you away? Focus. For me, it's when I go do these other things to take care of my body that the other ideas come. The ideas come in, yeah. When you make space for them, they, they come in like really crowded, like a, a people needing you. Like everybody's shouting and everybody wants your attention. You know, right. ideas want to get made. But one idea that I had since I was literally 16 years old never, ever went away until I wrote it. It was almost like I'm being haunted now <laughs> by these characters. If I don't write them, like exercise them, I'm never going to get away from them. Yes, yes. I've had a couple of those that wake me up at night. Yeah. It's like, oh, no, I have to write 200 totally. words, go back to sleep. No, uh, there's another 200 words. No. <laughs> Obsession. So shifting gears a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. Is there a common thread between the protagonists that you write in your series? Oh, totally. Yeah. I write uh, YA fantasy. So my protagonists are always young so far. Mm -hmm. Um, And they're always female, except for with the exception of one book. I'm known for writing strong female protagonists, young women that like there's often a romance thread, but the romance is never the primary story. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I can't really call them romance, even though there's kind of a relationship in there, because I've heard romance readers really like um, an interaction between the male and the female or the whoever's in the relationship, male, male, female, female, you know, right. every 10 pages kind of minimum. And I definitely don't have that. So I know that it's not romance, but romance is such an important part of a young, like, teen who's growing up and all the hormones are flying around and stuff so it has to be there but I really want I really wanted it to be about the adventure and I wanted it to be about the relationship between the friends yeah so they they all like there's I don't I write fairly clean books um I mean I don't like to use that term because it implies that other books are dirty but it's what readers understand there's no cursing there's no on-page sex there's 
no um, super like nasty situations between characters, at least not so far. Mm-hmm. The girls get along generally, like there's not a lot of disagreements between friends because they really love each other and support each other. So I have a really hard time actually writing good, like antagonist. My antagonists are really likable <laughs> because <laughs> I don't know how to write somebody who's really unlikable and I have to work on that. But. Well, there's something there. Like, do your readers complain that your antagonists no. are likable? No, they seem to hate them anyways, even though they love them. Like, <laughs> maybe that makes them even more hateable. Yeah, That maybe. these people we like are capable of such horrible, you know, horrible yeah. things. I think that they, they, they have an expectation or a hope that um, the antagonist will, you know, have a change of heart and become a good person, and then they get disappointed when it doesn't happen. Hmm. Because you, if there's like a thread of good in their personality and their character, in their character development, then you're kind of wondering which way that character will go. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's why my my antagonists still tend to work, even though they're not like super evil baddies. Yeah. Yeah. Was... Super evil baddies are like demons. Like the, the, those mm. easy to make a, a demon evil. You know, it's not a it's not a human. It's like a, this entity that. It's really easy to um, to make them kind of really unlikable, but I find that more difficult with humans. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's fair. And I I had that experience of co-writing. You know, and my co-writer kept being, "Okay, we we got to make them good." You know, not <laughs> not so overtly, but we lo- loved our antagonists so much. It's mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. How do we redeem? I think that often does make for a really good antagonist. You know, like I mean. I never saw the movie Joker, but my husband talks about it. He's like, that is, he's such a good bad guy. Cause he's, you care about him. Mm. If you don't care, then you're not invested in him. You know, in his own world, he is the protagonist, even though he's the antagonist in the story. Right. And so you're, you have these themes of adventure and, and friendship and. Yeah. Environmentalism and, too tends to come through. I'm a bit of an environmentalist. <laughs> um, yeah. Just think being canadian maybe does that a bit um, (laughs) are you from saskatchewan well my my family my dad is from saskatchewan and my family lives there but actually i'm more from the mountains i lived in canmore i don't know if you know where that is but near national park okay yeah so i mean you're just surrounded by this amazing wilderness and you can take advantage of it like snowboarding and hiking and mountain biking and just you spend so much time in nature that you fall in love and you you would never dream of doing something to hurt it, even yeah. though inadvertently you are just by, you know, consuming and stuff. But I think that just, it, it comes through in my writing, whether I want it to or not. And the fact that I've written elemental magic, um, I'm dealing with the elements. I'm dealing with water, oceans, like, you know, and all the things that are happening in the ocean, I'm writing contemporary. Mm. So these things are real now to my um, characters. And so, it's too, I can't just turn my back on it. If you're a mermaid in the ocean, you're going to be swimming through some plastic. You're going to be smelling mm-hmm. people in the water. You're going to be seeing if, um, creatures tangled up in fishing tackle and nets and stuff. Like it's mm-hmm. just there. Um, but I think it, it, I just have to be okay that, with the fact that it's a bit environmental and, and just let it do whatever it does. Mm. Uh, and, you know, hopefully, I, I think readers, I mean, most people in this day and age are aware that, the environment is important and reading that in amongst their stories as long as it's not too preachy is okay. Yeah. So you're, sounds like you're pretty well um, integrated with your voice as an author. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. 20 some odd books later, I should hope something integrated. (laughs) Did you you ever like used to like leave that kind of stuff out? Like, um, filter no, out in the moment I'm not editing and it just ends up in the rough draft and then you know it percolates for a while and then I might trim it back a little bit like I think one of my, my first version of my book Born of Earth was very heavy-handed with the environmental mm. side I just had to chop it back way back because I'm like this is me talking it's not my character talking and it's not actually adding to the story so a little bit is okay here and there because it's part of their world but that's not the point of the story so you know, you have to cut it back, cut it back, cut it back. Yeah. I think I noticed that with like listening to songs and writing songs. Like yeah. there's a difference between those 
pretty or touching or those metaphor songs that make you feel something really deeply mm-hmm. versus where the surface words are the message. Yeah. In terms of, especially the environmental piece. Mm-hmm. I've never gotten fired up listening to on repeat, like environmental yeah. protest songs. <laughs> 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 So I guess linked to those things, is there an underlying intention for why you write, like beyond the need to write? I think, I mean, I have these characters and stories in my head that if I don't write, like I said, they don't go away. And I don't often know what that's, what those stories, what the deeper meaning of those stories are until well after I finish them. But then I'll look back and I'll think, oh, I was actually processing this intensely personal thing, you know, that I was going through or, you know, a difficulty or, and I'll see that in my writing and not realize that it was a bit, it was like therapy Mm. in a way. Mm -hmm. Um, So I suppose that's kind of underneath it. Um, And the other is I just, I love to entertain people. I was an actress at one point and a dancer and I, love the fact that we can create art for other humans to enjoy. And I feel like everybody doesn't matter who you are, where you're from or how old you are. Everybody has that in them. Yeah. Form or another. I know people who say, Oh, I'm not an artist. I couldn't create, but I beg to differ. I just, you know, I think that everyone's got something to say. Yeah. And so you're an introvert and you, on the other hand, and they can go hand in hand, but you love to entertain and, when, yeah. you're, when you're acting right and and entertaining you get this like feedback process right with people who are there yeah and so how do you get that with writing well it's certainly not instantaneous but i have a really great um group of readers well sometimes it feels instantaneous i release a book and they read it in like a few hours <laughs> when's the next book ready <laughs> i haven't even got a title for it yet <laughs> um, no pressure yeah, yeah no pressure um, but yeah, there's definitely a feedback loop that happens there. And I interact with them on a daily basis and I'm always pulling them and they're always writing to me. And, um, so I kind of, I, I kind of know if I've missed the mark on something or if I'm on the right track and if they, you know, I'm always thinking, Oh, should I change this or change that? Cause you can look, I mean, in this world, especially it's so easy in, in the author world to look around at what other people are doing and thinking that must be better. Mm-hmm. Than what I'm doing and maybe I should switch and try something new and, um, I'm not, I haven't picked like the most popular genre out there. I haven't put any sex in my books, which I mean, sex sells. romance is the biggest genre, mm. you know, in the world. So I haven't done any of that. And I, and I'm always wondering like, well, is that what people want? Like maybe I should change my style and maybe I should make it sexier or maybe I should make it more, more dramatic or this or that. But I think when you find your voice and it feels true to you and you don't have to try too hard yeah. to it, then that's authentic and if you've got readers responding and saying this is worth money i'm yeah. willing to buy it and i'm excited about the next thing then you're on the right track and i think you should stay the course and continue to go you know go forward just you know make your efforts more about becoming a better writer and sharpening your craft and learning about the marketing and you know producing work your way rather than you know having this comparisonitis that will yeah lead you into this like dark place that you don't want to go. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I know know what you mean when we're hanging in, you know, the online circles we hang in and people are sharing about their results, you know? Yeah. You only know one part of this, like a tiny fraction of what that person did or went through or how they got where they went, you know, and people might be posting these amazing um, numbers and well, you don't know how they got there, how long they've been working for, what they spent to get there. Like you don't know any of that stuff. And so you, it's not fair to your inner creative spirit to think that, you know, you should compare yourself to that other creator and you fall short. Yeah. And plus, plus, like you mentioned with your voice, they probably found their voice and found their audience. Maybe they've been doing it for a lot longer and they found their voice faster and they can write faster. And, it's okay, you know, it doesn't negate your abilities one bit. So I imagine when you're <clears throat> writing with authenticity and trusting your voice that doing that kind of writing versus trying something else out because you should 
-hmm. I imagine the words come faster or easier. Definitely. Mm -hmm. I mean, for me, for sure. I I think if you can sit down and write your story without too much angst, um, aside from like the normal creative angst, like you're (laughs) not trying to shove yourself into a box that doesn't fit you. Yeah. So what do you have to do to get in the seat? Like the first time in the day? What do I like to start writing? Yeah. Do you have like a daily, like daily get started? Cause that beginning angst is probably the biggest trip. I have like my goal schedule for the day that I don't always hit because things come up, but I like to, I'll sleep. Um, I have weird hours because my husband works um, late often because he runs a pub. So he'll be, if in an ideal world, I'd get up early and start my day earlier, but I like to actually see him at the end of the day. So Mm. I stay up late and I end up sleeping and I need about nine hours of sleep, which is crazy. It's like I'm an infant or something, but yeah, I need about nine hours of sleep. And then when I get up. Sounds luxurious. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. (laughs) Don't have any kids or dogs or anything like that. So I can do this, but um, I'll get out of bed and just kind of stretch and have a coffee and start thinking about what I need to achieve. And I try and get my words done first because they kind of, they're the hardest part, which is just sitting down and getting those out um, in terms of uh, like creative energy and mental energy. Mm. So if I can get those out of the way, then I know that I can focus on marketing for the rest of the day, which I find much easier than writing. Mm. Uh, and I'll take a break. I'll, sometimes I'll do sprints. Or I'll just like um, put a timer on for 10 minutes or 20 minutes, depending on like how my wrists are feeling. Uh, <clears throat> and I'll write as fast as much as I can and then when the alarm goes off, I'll force myself to get up, go for a run around the block or stretch or whatever, just get myself energized. I think that's really important, getting blood back to your brain and your productivity will be better if you do that throughout mm-hmm. your day. Mm-hmm. And so once I get the words done, then I usually do something actually physical, like go to the gym. Sometimes I'll take a, a dance class or um, go for a run do yoga, whatever, just something to get me away from the work. And then I'll come back and I'll do marketing work and planning, um, for the rest of the day. Um, which is usually like, you know, just spending time making sure things are updated and planning your next promotion and talking to designers and all that stuff that goes along with the kind of housekeeping side of it. Yeah. So I like, I like asking about those I guess those outliers, those edge cases or normal things like, so on a day when everything doesn't go as planned, right? There is the distraction or something comes up. Yes. Almost every day. (laughs) Yeah. Right. (laughs) So what do you have to do then to get your back on track? Yeah. Oh, sometimes I don't get back on track. Sometimes I, I lose, like today, I haven't got my words done because I went and met a, a fellow author. We were planning to do sprints together, but we actually ended up doing plotting first, mm-hmm. a little bit of marketing. And by the time we had, I mean, you went, we ended up plotting together and it was so productive and good that we ended up immersed in it for about four hours. Um, mm. We'd only planned to do two, but you don't want to kind of stop these things if it's going well because yeah. we never recaptured the magic. And so um, after I finish chatting with you, I'll get my words done in the evening and just kind of, if I'm tired, then I know I won't produce this high quality story. I'll have to go back and do a bit of editing, maybe with the story before I'm okay to move on to the next chapter. But I try and just squeeze it in wherever I can. And, you know, coming back from Austria, I'll, I'll work on the plane, you know, two hour flight. I can do, you know, a chapter in that time. Yeah. Yeah, I just kind of fit it in wherever I can. And, and I don't mind, I know some writers need silence and no distractions and stuff, but I actually really like to go to a cafe and have a bit of energy around me. So I don't mind if I have to do it from my laptop in some noisy place. Mm. So I don't think we've explicitly mentioned this in the podcast so far, but so you're kind of a digital nomad, right? I was, yeah, until I settled in London in the, in the beginning of, uh, 2019. I was uh, for about three years. Um, I was I didn't have a home, sort of homeless. Yeah. Yeah. So, but you still managed to write. I know for some people, you know, they say they're going to go travel and and they'll write a whole bunch and get inspired and then yeah, you know, it because of the absence of routine, they don't write. I, I assume you right, found a yeah, way. Yeah. Well, I found because of the way I was doing it, the most disruptive thing of living as a digital nomad is getting from point A to point B. 
So once you're actually where you want to be, um, I would just stay there for a long time. It's not like I was traveling every two weeks or you know, mm. every 10 days or whatever. I would, um, like I went to Italy and I would stay there for five months or six months and then, you know, go back to Canada for four months and then go back to Italy for a while and then go to the UK for three months. Or it was like longer periods of time. Mm. And I would either stay in Airbnb or I'd crash with a friend if it wasn't such a long-term stay. Um, and I would have very little kind of maintenance. Like uh, I just had one bag and I would live out of that bag. My husband jokes that when we met, I smelled like luggage. Hmm? <laughs> because <laughs> All of my clothes were kept in luggage for a couple of years and I only had like four outfits. <laughs> you said you were like a little homeless animal that I had to save. <laughs> And you write because you're so like, these were in the earlier days of my publishing company. And there's a lot of pressure to make a living because I had quit my corporate job before yeah. I ever had anything written. And I wasn't like I had massive amounts saved up. So there's pressure to make money. And you just, that drove me to write, you know, to, to launch about 10 books in my first year, mm. which when I look back now at the time, you know, now that I have the knowledge and experience that I have now, I look back and I go, that was crazy. Like mm. 10 books in a year for me, some people can do that. No problem. I know someone who published 20 books last year. I cannot do that and not lose my sanity. <laughs> so what feels good to me is five or six, but you're figuring all that stuff out when you first get started and there's so yeah. much to learn. It's just overwhelming. Yeah. And you're obsessed with your you're getting your work and setting up this business and making it successful and making a go of it because you don't want to go back to the nine to five yeah. and you're, you know you might be in a really beautiful place you can go skiing or go to the you know take a surf class or whatever squeeze these things around your um your writing but actually your writing is your priority at that time in your life in my life yeah Imagine now, that, now that I'm older and I have not a lot older, three years later, I feel like really old in comparison to how I was three years ago. But um, now I feel like I could do the digital nomad thing again and, and know exactly how to survive it and enjoy it and not have it be a stress. Uh, yeah, that, that seems like that would be valuable mm -hmm. thing to learn and, and to it's share. It's a dream for a lot of people, right? To be able to not be tied down to one place. And, yeah, you know, but there is that. There is that pressure, you know, like yes. when you when you make a leap, right? Totally, yeah. And I, I imagine it because I didn't have a lot of commitments. You know, I didn't have rent to pay. I got rid of my vehicle. Like I didn't have bills hanging over my head. I just had to survive. Mm. And, or you know, a lot of people are not in that situation. You know, a lot of writers they have three children and mortgage. You know, so yeah, I remember it took me several years just to position myself to be able to get a real good start like with the music yeah. business yeah. stuff like it took a lot of lowering overhead yeah it takes more than people realize always it always takes more work than people realize yeah and so you mentioned collaborating and you've mm -hmm. done and you've done some i have done some yes so what are your thoughts on that now in terms of uh, I think it's very dependent on your personality and finding the right partner. Um, I've done either the, I've done the collaboration with the LMP, LMBPN, Michael Andoli's company, and I've done a collaboration with an author that I found on Upwork who I originally hired to help me with um, combat choreography because I knew nothing about fight scenes and um, and he was great. So I initially worked with him for that and then. I really liked him and I thought he was really talented and I thought I asked him, you know, what are you, what are your plans? What are your dreams? And he, this is Aaron D. Schneider. Um, mm. And he said, well, I'd love to be, I'd love to be an author full time. And at that time he was working, I think as a teacher in a juvenile detention center. I think that's mm. what he said it was called and, you know, having a real, um, you know, challenging time of it. And also like just his level of, of talent was, I was just, kind of blown away like I'm like this guy should be writing he's so good like he reminds me of Tolkien <laughs> he's so mm. good and mm. um so I I was like well why don't I why don't I um publish a trilogy of yours and we see how that goes because at that time I was thinking well I have a publishing house all set up there's a corporation and there's I have marketing 
skill and background and there's lots of people out there who want to just write and don't want to do the marketing maybe we can have a um a beneficial agreement that still allows them to make enough money and i can uh you know help them off get off the ground and have experience outside more genres than my own and all these pros that i kind of thinking in my head that's how it was going to go um but really once i got into it i learned that i was already overwhelmed with what i was doing let mm. alone being under someone like if i had not been a writer and just been a marketer i could have done it but to write my own stuff and then uh, get his stuff ready for publication and do all the things that I, you have to do to be successful. It was just way too overwhelming. So we tried that. And to me, it was a good experiment, but it didn't work out. Mm -hmm. um, and then I started uh, co-writing with him. And so we have a series that we're kind of working on right now, um, which I probably wouldn't do again, just because Again, it's a bit overwhelming to have another, like you're writing your own manuscripts and all of a sudden this other manuscript, which is, you know, normal 80,000 words or whatever comes in, it's ready for you to edit mm. and you have to switch what you're doing, switch your mindset. And also there's the financial cost behind that, you know, your editors and your covers and you have to get all that right. So it was just, it's a lot of juggling. Yeah. Um, and I think it can really work beautifully if you get the right personality types together and they kind of, they're both they both can be, can bring both to the table. Either one writes and the other does the marketing or you both do both. Yeah. And it's really, really hard to have to do writing and marketing and then have someone, even if their work is brilliant, um, not understand the kind of marketing side of it. Yeah. Make sense? Um, yeah, it does. Yeah. So I actually introduced um, Aaron to Michael Anderley and um, they're going to start working on projects together. And I'm super excited for him because he is a fantastic storyteller and I kind of feel badly because I really wanted to like bring him to the world and help him reach his goals. And, but I just, I wasn't equipped to do it. It was an experiment. It was tougher than I thought. And, yeah. you know, I would think twice before doing it again. Yeah. I'm sure he got a lot out of working with you. And if, I hope so. And I if hope nothing else, confidence, right? Yeah. I mean, I definitely, my, I would never have worked with him if I didn't truly authentically believe that he was, really talented so he i think he did you know does feel that from me and i think that the next step for him like this is <clears throat> some um real real uh progress that he's made over the last three years through our relationship and he's written six books you know mm. uh, he's this sixth book now um from us working together and now he's going to take the next level and go into a publishing house that actually has the power and the ability and the reach and the resources and everything to help him level up and yeah. that makes me really happy. Yeah, that's that's got to feel good. Everybody takes a different path, hey? Like, there's no two authors that you can talk to that say, yeah, this is how I did it, and it's identical. It's always like this strange, right. convoluted journey to, to authorship. <laughs> right. I guess the only thing that's consistent between authors is uh, the math. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so what are you still, like, learning or struggling with? Well, I am struggling more with my physical issues than I ever did before, um, the RSI and the TOS, and I've had to invest in a few things like a microphone to learn dictation and mm -hmm. keyboard, so I'm tackling those um, right now. Never had these issues be so kind of challenging before that, they, that I couldn't ignore them. And I'm also, um, I've got a fair amount of marketing background, but I still feel overwhelmed sometimes by all the metrics that are coming at you from all of these different advertising platforms and mm -hmm. deciding which one uh, is the most benefit, like where you should spend most of your time because you can spend your time in a million different places and spread yourself thin and not actually get the results you're looking for. Uh, but it's just, it's still a bit overwhelming. There's so much you have to do. Um, yeah. And it's all you until you, you know, find the right person to bring on board to help you. It's all right. you. And I imagine even when you bring them on board, if you haven't figured out your 20% activity that gets yeah. the 80% of your revenue, that that would still be a challenge. Yeah. And it would eventually, like, I mean, it just wouldn't be sustainable if you didn't, if you weren't really economizing um, you and whoever your helper is. Like I've tried bringing people on board multiple times. And I've had to end it fairly quickly every single time. Mm. Uh, 
Um, so uh, like you just, <laughs> when you get overwhelmed, all you do is want to give the job to someone else to do yeah. and let them focus on it. But not everybody knows what to do. And I mean, this is still a fairly new um, thing. I know it's been around for more than 10 years, in, you know, being indie, um, but it's changing really fast and the algorithms change fast and the dashboards always change and there's a lot of testing you have to do. And, yeah. you know, you really just want to, your dream is to find somebody who knows how to do all that and they can just take it off your plate. But yeah. realistically, those people are authors and they are driving their own brand forward. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. And yeah, so it sounds like maybe what it was coming down to for some of it is, you know, this this overwhelm, but really like time and energy and your health and your capacity yeah. to write. Yes. I still, and I still want to live a life, you know, and do things and socialize. And I had to, forced myself to join dance classes that were half hour to an hour away from the house just to get out and go meet people. And, um, you know, otherwise you become a hermit, you never leave the house. Yeah. And you, uh, it, I don't think that's healthy for anybody. You have to get outside and to get some fresh air. And otherwise you forget how to talk to people. And, um, but yeah, so balance, balancing, I don't want to give up the things in my life that make me happy outside of work just to have another three launches or another four launches in the year. I want to be able to build a sustainable way of working for the long term. Yeah. Now that I have a backlist, I should be able to do that. So, you know, but getting there is easier said than done. Right. Well, Abby Lynn, it's been a mm -hmm. pleasure talking with you. You too, Ethan. Thank you for making time for me and reaching out. It's been great chatting with you. Yeah, thank you. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Fearless Storyteller. As a reminder, any and all links can be found in the show notes. And if you're enjoying this podcast, will you please consider leaving a review? By doing so, you'll be helping new listeners discover The Fearless Storyteller podcast.